Good evening. It is good to be together this Lord's Day. We are thankful for the presence of each and every one here. We are certainly delighted that we are able to spend another period of time of worship to God and study of His Word. And We invite you to be taking out your Bibles. We're going to be using them and studying from them some this evening. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 14 is where we will be starting out tonight. In John, the 14th chapter, Jesus is with His apostles and He is preparing them for the work and the mission that He has set aside for them to preach the Gospel and to take God's Word out to the lost in the world and to preach about Jesus. And He is preparing them as He is... This is the night of His betrayal. And John chapter 14 and in verse 26, He provides some words of comfort. As you can imagine, they were troubled in spirit and wondering how they were going to be able to fulfill this mission. And Jesus provides some words of comfort to them. He tells them that a Helper is going to come in verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again in chapter 15, and continuing in this same discussion, it's a very lengthy discourse that Jesus has with His apostles. At the end of chapter 15, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus again reiterates, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about Me, and you will also testify because you have been with Me from the beginning. What we learn in these passages is that one aspect of the Spirit's role and purpose and His work is to reveal God's will. And He was going to bring the words of Jesus to the remembrance of the apostles so they could recall them and that they could put things together that Jesus had said that they could make some of the connections that needed to be made so that they would be able to preach the truth of God's Word and the mystery that had long been uh, awaiting revelation. So the Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead that is commissioned with the work of bringing about that remembrance of revealing God's will. And as you continue on in chapter 16, Jesus gets very explicit about the Holy Spirit's work. In chapter 16 of the book of John, in John chapter 16 and in verse 7, He says, But I tell you the truth, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And and He, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that statement right there is a big statement about what the Holy Spirit is going to do, that He is going to convict sinners. That He is going to have a role in the conversion of the sinner, that He's going to convict them, convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says in verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see Me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. 
And so he tells them very specifically that the Holy Spirit is going to have a role to play in convicting the heart of sinners through the preaching of the Gospel. And while the Scriptures, I believe, are very clear about the work of the Holy Spirit in this process of conversion, it has not escaped the ability of men to begin to lead astray in upholding false teachings and false doctrine about the Holy Spirit, about His work. And we need to be on guard for some of those things from time to time. We need to realize that there are false teachings and false doctrines that are out there. And even some brethren have been confused about the work of the Holy Spirit and particularly about this work of conversion and the Spirit's role in conversion. And I think sometimes it is easier to point out error than it is to uphold truth. And tonight we want to try to be balanced. We want to try to point out some mistakes that people might make about the Holy Spirit. But we also want to counteract that or counterbalance that by looking at what the Spirit does and what the Spirit's role is in conversion. And we certainly don't want to deny the Spirit's activity and role in conversion. And so we want to go about studying some of these things for our benefit that we might be able to better understand and glorify God. And the major question, the major issue that comes up whenever we discuss the Spirit's role in conversion is does the Holy Spirit work in a direct way upon the hearts of unbelievers? Does He do something miraculous or does He do something directly operating apart from the Word, apart from the Gospel? Does He do something to the alien sinner? And I believe this is very much connected with the Calvinistic doctrine of total hereditary depravity or what might be better termed as total inability. Because in the TULIP doctrine of Calvinism, total hereditary depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints, Calvinism begins with the idea of man's total hereditary depravity, and that is that man is born with a sinful nature that we are born with this nature that is totally, completely inclined to do evil. And that we were born with this sinful nature. And that it was acquired at birth. And that man is holy. That is W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y. But holy and incapable of doing anything good or desiring to do anything good whatsoever. And it supposes that this disposition of man happened at the fall in Genesis chapter 3 and left humanity without any ability to think, desire, or will to do anything that is morally good, holy, or righteous. In the Presbyterian Confession of Faith on this doctrine, notice what they say. It says, man by his fall into sin hath, here's our word, holy lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation, is not able, he is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. That I want you to notice what this doctrine is teaching, that 
Man alone cannot have any will or desire to do anything good that it requires an act of God. It requires an act of God if this person, if a person is going to be converted. And that is the eye in Tulip. The irresistible grace. That is an irresistible work of the Holy Spirit that comes upon sinners. And this idea of, of total inability is very much connected with the work of the Holy Spirit in Calvinism, and Calvinistic doctrine and teaching. In the Standard Manual for Baptist Churches, they say, we believe that regeneration consists in giving a holy disposition to the mind that is effected in a manner above our comprehension by the Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to see this evening is that what we can tell from these two ideas is that man is completely unable to do anything on his own and that it requires an act of God through the Holy Spirit to convert somebody. That is the doctrine of Calvinism. And one of the passages that they might appeal to is found in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 and in verse 44, if you will turn there with me. Or you can read it on the screen. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, when Jesus is teaching the, the great multitudes, in John chapter 6 and verse 44, it says, Jesus he is talking about those who might come to believe in Him. And He says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's a very common proof text that someone might appeal to that to try to uphold and substantiate this doctrine. That it looks like Jesus is saying exactly what Calvinists would believe, right? That no one is going to be able to come to faith in Jesus unless the Father directly does something through the Spirit on that person to bring him to Christ. At first glance. But usually avoid any kind of false doctrine or false teaching, you usually just need to read another couple of verses, don't you? And that's exactly what we need to do here because in verse 45, Jesus goes on to say, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. And so what we learn here is that God does draw people to Christ. Absolutely. But the question is not if He does, it's how does He do that? How does He draw people to Christ? And Jesus tells us in verse 45, He explains what He means in verse 44. Everyone who has heard and learned. When we hear God's Word, when we hear God's message, and, and as He's talking to that original audience, and when they heard and learned from the writings of the prophets, when we listen to the preaching of the Gospel, when we Listen to the preaching of Scripture. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father, and when they are convicted by faith, they are the ones who come to Christ. It's very important to acknowledge that how does God work? How does God draw the sinner? He does so through the teaching of Scripture, through the Word of God. And when we hear God's Word, taught and proclaimed. And so whenever we recognize 
and ask and deal with this question, does the Holy Spirit work directly on our hearts? I think the question must be no. That He's not going to do something apart from the Scriptures. That He's not going to work independently and apart from the Word of God. In our Scripture reading in Acts chapter 7, in Acts chapter 7 we read about the stoning of Stephen and how the people heard Stephen's message and how they reacted. In verse 54 it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And they began to stone him and kill him on that occasion. But what is interesting, as Stephen had been preaching throughout this whole chapter, if you go back up to verse 51, notice the stinging words of rebuke that Stephen had for the council that day. He says in verse 51, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Stephen tells them that you are resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, how is the Holy Spirit doing anything in this chapter? I invite you to go back and read this evening or someday this week. Go and read all of Acts chapter 7. Read that sermon that Stephen was preaching. And the Holy Spirit was working through the words of Stephen, through his message, through the sermon that he was preaching that day. And so what we see is that Stephen is saying that you are certainly resisting the message of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not doing anything on you directly, but that whenever you resist the Holy Spirit, whenever you deny the truth, when you are unwilling to hear God's message and hear the rebuke, you stand condemned. The Bible is filled with examples of people who rejected the Gospel, denying the Holy Spirit's work and activity. As we can see in the Scriptures that the Holy Spirit, as we recognize in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, the Holy Spirit was going to bring words to the apostles. That the Holy Spirit was going to be the revealer of truth to them. In the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 10, in the limited commission, whenever Jesus sent out the twelve to the people of Israel, what we call the limited commission, that they were not to go into all the world at this time to preach to Jew and Gentile. They only went to the house of Israel. In Matthew chapter 10 and in verse 20, He says, Jesus telling the apostles, for it is... Not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And I think this lays down a very important principle and foundation for our study tonight that the Holy Spirit worked through human messengers, through those who had preached the Gospel. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And that's exactly what Stephen was saying whenever the council rejected him and willing to put him to death, 
He was saying, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. You're not resisting me. It wasn't about rejecting Stephen. It was about rejecting the words of the Spirit. It was about rejecting the will of God and His message. And a lot of times in discussions about the Holy Spirit, people will appeal to Acts chapter 16. In Acts chapter 16, and we'll have some more to say about this tonight, but I do want to just use this as an introduction to this question. In Acts chapter 16 and in verse 14, when Paul came to Thyatira, or to Philippi, he met a woman from Thyatira named Lydia, who was a seller of purple, and she is described as a worshiper of God. And in verse 14, it says that she was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And many times people will appeal to this verse and say, well, there you go, preacher. That's the verse. The Lord opened her heart. It happened in a direct way, didn't it? That the Holy Spirit and the Lord did something directly to Lydia to cause her to come to faith, right? Well, let's just think about this a little bit further. I'm not going to deny that the Holy Spirit convicts sinners and is involved in the work of conversion. I believe that very much. But the question is not, did the Lord do something? It's how does the Lord do it? That's the question we really need to be asking. How does God do so? And if what Jesus has said so far in, in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 20 then ever He was telling His apostles, it's not you who speaks, but it's the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you, then we have to account for the element that God is not working in a direct way, but that He is working through means, that He is working through human agents, that He is working through other people who might be preaching and teaching the Gospel. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. I think Acts chapter 2 serves as a wonderful test case for this principle. Because in Acts chapter 2, you'll remember on the day of Pentecost, and the early part of that chapter, when the apostles were all together in one place, the Spirit comes upon them and falls upon them. And it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, "...and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues." as the Spirit was giving them utterance. So the apostles began to speak as they were directed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was giving them utterance of the words that they were supposed to be speaking. The idea that the words are so important here in this chapter, that they were speaking words that the Holy Spirit was revealing to them. You continue on in verse 6, And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? And he goes on in verse 11, talking about all these different people from different nations, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So the audience there, they heard the words of the apostles. They were hearing them speak 
Words about God and what God has been doing and working. You continue on in verse 14, but Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. You see? Peter saying, listen to my words. Where did those words come from? Remember verse 4, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was giving them utterance. And you know the sermon very well, I'm sure. He quotes from the prophet Joel. He uses some quotations from the Psalms from David. And he talks about Jesus and how He is exalted to the right hand of God. You come down to verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The audience was convicted by the words that they heard. And they then obey the words of Peter. Peter tells them what to do in verse 38. And in verse 41, So then, those who had received His Word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. I think so far what we can tell is that the Holy Spirit was absolutely involved in this from the start of the chapter. But the Holy Spirit never did anything directly upon the audience of the people who were hearing the words of the apostles. Peter and the apostles, they were preaching words by which they might be saved. Acts 2 is a wonderful test case. And that you just go through and underline all those verses that we looked at where there, the emphasis is on the words that they were either that the audience was hearing and that the apostles were speaking. How are sinners convicted of their sin and their need to obey the gospel? By the preaching of the gospel. Sometimes the Spirit would direct preachers where to go. You see that in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 8, in Acts chapter 8 and in verse 29, when with the example of Philip and the eunuch, the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. That was a miraculous occasion in which the Spirit would was directing preachers where to go. Sadly, you don't get that anymore. (laughs) But that is another example of how the Spirit might operate. But again, the Spirit did not go to the eunuch, did He? He didn't operate on the eunuch's heart. He directed Philip to go to the eunuch and to preach Jesus to him. It was through words that convicted him, that eunuch, that he needed to be saved. If you continue on in Acts chapter 11, in Acts chapter 11, Peter is before the Jews and he is back in Jerusalem. He is giving an account of what basically happened in Acts chapter 10 with the conversion of Cornelius. 
And in Acts chapter 11, he is just rehearsing all the things that occurred in Acts chapter 10. And in verse 14, he is talking about how he was sent to Cornelius, how he was summoned by Cornelius, and he said that he was he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household, that God, he did not act directly upon Cornelius, God had a message for Cornelius in a miraculous way, and he said, send for Peter, because Peter is going to come and he's going to speak words to you by which you and your house might be saved. And so the Spirit did not fall on Cornelius and his household in a direct way apart from the Gospel to save them, do something to them apart from the Gospel. Now, some might object, well, the Spirit did fall on Cornelius. And they began speaking in tongues. Well, there's proof, preacher, that they were saved and that they had received the Spirit. Well, what's interesting is that you might read there in Acts chapter 10 and in verse 45, it says, all the circumcised believers and the Jews who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. What strikes me about that verse right there, just at the outset of reading that, is that the Spirit falls on Cornelius and these Gentiles. And who are the ones that are amazed? It's Peter and his company. They're amazed. Think about that for a moment. If you started speaking in tongues, I might be amazed, but I bet you might be even more amazed, wouldn't you? (laughs) But the point being is the Spirit fell upon them not in a sense to save them apart from the preaching of the Gospel, but that the Spirit fell on them as a sign not to the Gentiles, but to Peter and his company, which Peter says in chapter 11 in verse 17 as he's going through all of this, he says, therefore God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that could stand in God's way? He's saying God was making it perfectly clear to me that these people were needing the Gospel. That these Gentiles, they needed to be saved. And it says in verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The Holy Spirit fell upon the household of Cornelius not as a not to save them apart from the Gospel, but as a sign to Peter and to the Jews. This is certainly a unique case, but I believe it's again an exception that proves the rule. The Holy Spirit did not directly fall upon sinners to save them apart from the preaching of the Gospel. They still had to have Peter preach the Gospel to them. Chapter 10 and verse 48, the very last verse, Peter ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. He ordered them and commanded them what they must do to be saved. You continue on throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, 
the conversion of a man named Sergius Paulus. In Acts chapter 13 and in verse 7, he was the proconsul, it says, who was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. And then in verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Now in that, in between those verses, there was a man named Bar-Jesus, or Elimus. He was a magician of sorts. And he was trying to dissuade Sergius Paulus. And Paul struck him blind. And so when Sergius Paulus saw what had happened in all this, he saw the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was not the Holy Spirit working on Sergius Paulus. He was converted through the preaching of the Gospel. And so by the time we come to Acts chapter 16, and in verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening... And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Lydia was converted because she heard the teaching of the Gospel. And so what we learn is that the Spirit works through means. He doesn't act directly upon the sinner. He works through the teaching of the Gospel. Now, sometimes people might object. I've heard people object to the, some of these conclusions that we're drawing tonight. They may object and say, well, you have to have a direct operation of the Holy Spirit. Or you have to at least allow room for that because... If you don't, then you are limiting the power of God, and I don't want to have anything to do with limiting the power of God. I, I, and I agree, I don't want to limit God's power. I don't want to be perceived as limiting God's power. But I also don't want to attribute to something to God that He says He doesn't do. I think we can all agree to that too, probably. That we want to be very careful that we don't want to say God does this and acts this way when He really doesn't. That would make us false witnesses of who God is. And when the Scriptures teach, and when the Spirit Himself has stated through inspired people, that He works through human messengers who preach the Gospel when Jesus tells us that's how the Spirit works. I think we need to tread very carefully in any other conclusion that we might draw. The Spirit does not operate a direct way upon a sinner's heart. He works through the Gospel. And if we deny the Spirit's revealed words, and if we refuse to believe how He tells us He works, then we are the ones who are really in danger of limiting God and what He has said. Consider with me 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think this is a 
beautiful passage in which Paul is talking about the conversion of people and how the preaching of the Gospel is able to have a tremendous effect. He is talking about his ministry as an apostle of Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and in 1, to set up the context here, he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience, in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I want you to just recognize right here at the outset of the verses, there in verse 3, Paul does say, our gospel could be veiled. Our gospel could be veiled. Not to believers, but to the unbelieving. Have you ever thought about that? Paul, by his own admission, is saying that the gospel could be veiled to some. Why is that? I think he's going to explain it as we continue reading. He says in verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, that's the Gospel, in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Paul's acknowledging that this Gospel may be veiled than the unbelieving. But he's saying this is how God is going to work. Through earthen vessels. Paul's making it abundantly clear that he's preaching the Gospel not for his own self-glorification, but as a servant of the Lord. And that it is God who's going to effect change. It is God who is going to convict the sinner. It is God who's going to give life. In verse 6, He's saying light shall shine out of darkness. God said that in the beginning. I think he's drawing a parallel from the beginning when God said, let there be light. If God is capable of doing that, then He is capable of giving you new life because of the Gospel. And He has shown shined the light of knowledge of the glory of God in our hearts. But how does He do that? Paul says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. What many people think is going on here apparently in ancient Corinth that people would have a very uh, like a clay jar, but it was very, very thin. And it would have a candle in it and they would carry that. And so this clay jar, you could see through it. And the fact that that jar was there, it it was just something that 
would veil the light a little bit. But it is obvious that the vessel that surrounded the candle was not what was producing light. Many people think that's exactly what Paul is drawing upon here. That idea that that we are just the human messenger. We're just the earthen vessel. And that the treasure of the Gospel and God's saving power is found within those human vessels, but it is not the human vessel. It's just the tool or the vehicle by which God communicates saving truth. And by the fact that these earthen vessels are frail, weak, and fragile ought to prove the point that we don't have the capability of saving ourselves. The light and the power of the Gospel comes from God and not from ourselves. So because God uses human messengers to work through does not limit God's power or His ability. It does not limit the Holy Spirit's power or ability. In fact, it magnifies and glorifies God. Then if God could use Paul, or if God could use me or any one of us to share the Gospel with others, it only reinforces the point that if God can effect change in Paul or one of us, then He can do so with anyone. That's how powerful the Gospel of Christ is. Which is exactly what Paul's point is in the book of Romans chapter 1. And verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, when, Paul, when the, the Hebrew writer says, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is living and active because God is living and active. The Spirit is living and active. The Gospel and the Word of God is able to convict sinners and bring about change. The Word of God is able to save our soul. And so God's saving power works through human messengers who preach the Gospel. This does not diminish God's power. It does not limit God. God's saving power works through human messengers. And it ultimately glorifies God. And so what we come to recognize is that the Holy Spirit is able to work through the preaching of the Gospel. Nobody doesn't do anything directly upon us, but through the words of the preaching of God's truth, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is able to work if we will listen, if we will hear, if we will learn. God is drawing us. God is wanting us to come to Him. And what we see in other passages of Scripture that you might want to jot down, we're not going to look at all these tonight. Our time escapes us. But what we see is that the Spirit saves. 
The Holy Spirit is involved in our salvation and in our life with Christ. I wouldn't want you to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus was giving the Great Commission. And He told the apostles to go for, in verse 19, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit is involved in our conversion. The Spirit is involved in our becoming a Christian when we are baptized into Christ. The Holy Spirit saves us just as the Father does and just as the Son does. The Spirit has a role to play. Another passage for our consideration, then the lesson will be yours. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in 1 Peter chapter 1, what we see is Peter is opening this letter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. He's describing the saints. He says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That just as the Father planned our redemption and by Jesus' blood that was sacrificed, the Spirit sanctifies us. He makes us holy. He makes us God's special chosen people. The Holy Spirit is involved in our conversion and He saves us through the Gospel when we hear and obey the words of truth. So we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is active and working through the preaching of the Gospel. Just as Jesus was offering words of comfort to the apostles that the Spirit of truth would come and that He would reveal all truth to them and that they, the Helper, would bring all things to remembrance. The words that we read in the Scriptures are the words that the Spirit has revealed to us. The question is, will we believe them? Will you allow the words of the Spirit and the will of God to save you? Will you respond obediently to the Gospel of Christ to be born again through water? As Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, the words that Peter said to those people as they were of their sin, and they asked, what shall we do? And they, Peter told them words by which they might be saved. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They heard words by which they might be saved. Words that did not come from Peter in his imagination, but words that were divinely revealed through the Holy Spirit of God given to Peter. We have those same words revealed for us. Will you obey them? Will you follow them? 
Tonight, if you need to become a child of God, we'd have no greater pleasure than to help you become a Christian. And perhaps it is that you are a Christian, but you've not been living faithfully for the Lord, and you need to make some things correct in your life, and you need to come back to the Lord. We're here to help you. Do whatever we can. If we can help you in some way this evening, would you let it be known as we stand and as we sing?